We have traversed the dangerous ground. We have climbed the mountain. What mountain? The mountain of Christology, the mountain of Messiah. You'll have to turn it down some, I think, because it's going to ring. But where have we arrived is the question, right? We've arrived, and where should that be? Well, now we have all the answers, right? We figured out the entire mystery of Messiah and, and human and divine, and now it's all solved, and we can go out of here and tell everybody all of the answers who, what, why, how, when, where, no. That was never the goal. You know why? Because it's an impossibility. It is an impossibility to figure out God. I read this. Uh, David had a book that I was glancing through. That is a, it's a traditional book. It's a kind of a mystical book on Mashiach and from the very Jewish perspective. And I love this quote. Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk used to, used to say, <laughs> Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk used to say, I could never accept a God that I can understand. Think about the depth of that statement. If we can understand it, He's no different than us. But that is not to say we don't seek knowledge. We don't seek relationship. We don't seek to understand. I mean, because that is part of developing the relationship with God, is understanding who He is, His attributes. He goes on to say, this author says, many times in life we cling to a certain belief hoping we can build and rebuild our lives around the things which we are most familiar. After all, familiarity is what we rely upon to build our opinions. But who is to say that this is the way our lives really should be? Is there nothing more? Have we explored all the possibilities available to us? I love this, considering the author. We could be staring Mashiach straight in the eye and it might never occur to us that it is He. Sometimes we require, and this is seven weeks, my friends, sometimes we require a total overhaul of our way of thinking to be able to see what we really should be doing, where we really should be heading. This can only be accomplished at times when faced with a total destruction of our self-made temples, i.e. a willingness to accept that former assumptions might have been an error we can then open our minds and hearts to examine a completely new approach in life to, in order to fully recognize God and serve Him properly. Mashiach was prepared even before the creation to set us on the right spiritual path that will bring us each closer to God. How true is that? I started at the beginning by saying the things that I'm saying are the things that I believe. I didn't just make them up. I've studied and prayed extensively in preparation for this. And I will tell you, I am glad it's coming to an end because spiritually, I had a conversation one time with Ralph Griffin who was telling me about something very difficult he was teaching and, and the weight, I mean the weight of feeling that was on it. And I have felt that, my friends, not for you to feel sorry for me, I've loved every second of it. And by the end of this message, 
I pray that you will have, through it, a bigger picture. Not just of Yeshua, but of His Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven. But you know, I, I came to a realization this week, um, which, which really is a, is a translation of that personally. This week, month, some, someday this week, I was getting ready and I came downstairs to come to the synagogue and I was dressed. And I came down and Kelly looked at me like, it was kind of that look that says, I don't know what it is, but I don't like you right now. But you know what it was? It was first thing in the morning. I hadn't even had a chance to mess anything up yet. You know what it was? And this will sound so crazy to you. I have forgotten how to dress normally. On Saturdays, I've been wearing clothes like this for a long time on Saturdays, so I know how to wake up and get dressed. But for 16 years... I was basically wearing my pajamas to work. I woke up and every day it was like Fred Flintstone. Blue pants, blue shirt, blue pants, blue shirt, blue pants, blue shirt, scrubs. And I realized I totally have forgotten how to dress myself. And so I was just putting on whatever I thought that was, you know, from... 17 years ago that was in my closet. And the look said, can you change your way of thinking? And that resonated with me because I am a creature of habit, me and Fred Flintstone. But that, my friends, is what we've done. We've faced the facts that we have a human Messiah. Everything is so... A, a, a Messiah who was fully human and everything that, that comes along with that. Thus having something in common with Adam, a son of God, the man from dust. Coupled with an exalted soul, the Logos, the Spirit of God in fullness that made him so much more than a man. The man from heaven. And... There's a challenge that is very apparent to me in Messianic Judaism, and I run into it regularly. People ask me questions about things, not in the Messianic synagogue, but in in church. People that I meet outside, they ask me questions. When I begin to answer, they also have a look for me. The look is, the look is, I don't know if I can trust you because you're saying things that are very different than what I believe. Very different than what I've been taught. And there's a fear in Messianic Judaism that comes down to this paradigm assessment. Here's how it works. If I am forced to confront any different way of thinking, especially related to Yeshua, it is virtually inevitable that I'm going to deny Him, give Him up as Messiah, move to Israel, grow peyote, and wear black and white, and that's the end of my life. 
I have seen people do that in Messianic Judaism. I have, and it's unfortunate, and it's sad. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And so, you know, for my friend who here one time during these weeks got mad and said, Jesus is God, and left. And the people who said, well, you've humanized him down to nothing. No, this one's for you. This bud's for you. What'd she say? I knew it was going to be a good day. As I've told you before, I will never minimize, degrade, demote, diminish Yeshua. And in seeing the value of his humanity and his divinity and all that surrounds that, we increase his glory. We increase his majesty. We increase his mission, his obedience, his love for you, and his call to you because that is not to be glossed over. How easy is it to say, pick up your cross. Man, I'm picking up my cross today, carrying it. I couldn't tell that from looking at your life at all. That's discipleship. I know a guy who wrote a book called The Four Responsibilities of Discipleship or something along those lines. It's a really good book. You can get it on Amazon. Authored by Hucky. Discipleship, man. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it actually mean? Well, we talked all about the humanity of Yeshua and how he had to have that for us to be able to model our lives like him. He had to set an example. And that's the call. And that's a recap. But the question that, has, that, that, that faces us at the end is after looking at this, considering it, maybe even being open to, to thinking maybe something I thought could be different, what do I do with Yeshua now? How do I worship Yeshua? How do I put Him where He needs to be? Well, you know what? How do I worship Yeshua as God and how do I worship Yeshua are different questions. How do you worship Yeshua you worship Him exactly as He is to be worshipped. And it is exactly throughout the Scripture easily to find. I'm going to make sense of that because it's kind of confusing. Yeshua the Messiah, the Chosen One of God. We've talked about this and I will credit Daniel Lancaster till my last dying breath for this way of saying oneness is not sameness, but the oneness they share is inseparable. That is a line that defines the father and son relationship with perfection. And that is the same oneness in a certain sense that, that Yeshua offers us. You know what He was before from the beginning, what He did to merit the calling of being your Messiah, that He was chosen from the beginning to carry the full essence, it says, the fullness of pleroo or pleroma or whatever, the Godhead fullness was in him. 
And he, will, he came and He accomplished on earth what no one had ever done and will never do again. And that He is in His own words the way, the truth, and the life. To what? To the everlasting God. The language we've discussed of Shekinah, Torah, Chokhmah, wisdom, logos, mimra, dibber, spirit. They were all ways of affirming Hashem's interaction, God working with his people throughout history on earth. And for us as messianic believers, that best term forever going forward, God's perfect interaction with his people was through his son, the name Yeshua. There are three terms I gave you that would fill our discussions. Word, we talked a lot about that from John. Beginning, we talked a lot about that from the beginning. And light, which we've not talked about. Light. Which is actually the beginning. And it's the middle. And it's the end, which is actually the beginning again. Boy, you are really confusing. Scripture upon Scripture we've studied. Boreshit, Daniel, Colossians. We've looked at Philippians, John, Yeshayahu, Shemot. We've looked at the Synoptic Gospels. We've looked at Apocryphal writings. We've looked at the Book of Enoch. We've looked at the Rabbinic writings. We've looked at Talmud. We've looked at Midrash. I mean, we've looked everywhere. And today, in conclusion, we look at an apocalyptic writing by the Apostle John, known as Revelation. Because it's the end that is the beginning. And that's really where we wanted to get. But, but, but to the question, what is Yeshua now? Where is Yeshua? What do I do with Yeshua in my halacha, in my way of walking out my faith, my worship, my adoration? Where is His place in my life? If I'm coming from a from a church background where Yeshua was all and everything and only to the exclusion of His Father, which He never did. What do I do with this? Where is He? Well, it's quite obvious and easy to pin down. Where is He? Correct. At the right hand. At the right hand. At the right hand of the throne. Literally? Literally? Is He literally to the right of a throne? The answer is no. There's not literally a throne in heaven that God is sitting on because God has no form. What does that mean? I don't know. Shabbat Shalom. It's been... <laughs> I'll come back to the throne. Seated at the right hand. Well, at the right hand, literally, does God have a hand? Acts 7.55, He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Most of today's message is Scripture, by the way. I'll call it out. You can write it down. You can go back and read it later. You'll see how it all fits together. Acts 7.55, He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God in Yeshua, standing at the right hand of God. Romans 8.34, Who is to contemn? 
Who is to condemn? Messiah Yeshua is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Ephesians 1.20, that He worked in Messiah when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand and in the heavenly places. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 1 Peter 3.22, He who has gone into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Will we literally sit on Yeshua's throne? No. What is a throne? We'll come back to that. There was a little, there was a little rift in the community. Do you remember this little thing that happened? Mark 10, 37, the sons of thunder came to Yeshua, and what did they say? Hey, right and left, right and left, what do you think? You, me, him? It could work. It could work. And what did he say? You don't even know what you're asking. It wasn't about sitting on a throne. It was... An ambitious pursuit of power to be at the right and the left hand. I mean, that's politics, man. And, the, and we know it was a big deal. We know it was a little, little manipulative mood because the other ten got kind of, mm, eh. look at those guys. Sons of thunder. Sons of, sons of conniving. The right hand. The right side. What is it? No offense, where's Taylor? Is she in class? Who's left-handed? Okay, right hand. Right side. Before I hurt the feelings of all my left-handed people. Remember, Judges 3. Remember this guy? Yes. Ehud. Don't forget, again, in Judges 3.15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and He gave them a deliverer, a left-handed man, Ehud. A deliverer being left-handed, pretty good. So, right, left-handed people, there's good stuff for you. But, let's talk about the right side. The right side. The right hand. The hand of authority. The hand of blessing, Genesis 48. Israel, Yaakov, stretched out his right hand. The hand of strength, Exodus 15, 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Hand of renewal. When Yeshua saw, when John saw Yeshua in Revelation, he fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Isaiah, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41, it is the hand of sacrifice. God instructed the priesthood, you shall take, kill the ram, take part of its blood, put it on the tip of the right ear. Tips, thumbs of the right hands, great toes, great toes, that's what I'm going to call my big toe. The, my great toe. My greatest toe of the right feet, culminating, culminating in the right side, the right hand, the hand of sovereignty. Having taken the scroll from the right 
hand of the one who was seated on the throne. So the right-handed one comes up and takes it from the right hand of the one who's on the throne. Right, right, right. He held the scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea. In his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Here is Yeshua at the right hand of God. What does it mean? It simply means in the place of authority. We know that. Where is Yeshua now? He is in the place of authority. But we can't be trapped by trying to craft these pictures of what it looks like with Yeshua and a little throne sitting next to a big throne in heaven and looking up and saying, Hey, Dad! This is fun! We've got to get away from that and just recognize what it means right hand authority. But what's next? What's next? That's where Yeshua is. What's next? Revelation 5, 1 through 5. Don't cry. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. If you weren't here for Daniel Lancaster's teaching on this, I think it was session four of the Revelation conference, you should go back and hear it. It's amazing and great. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in in heaven or on the earth or below the earth was found worthy. No one was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open it or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold, he comes. Oh, wait. He's a lion of Judah. You get it? Now you know why we played it. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Absolute authority. The only one in heaven, on earth, and beneath the earth. The only one who could take it and do it. Revelation 5, which is the classic, now nearly canonized hymn of Carrie Job and the Revelation song. Man, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let me say to you, Is Yeshua worthy of exaltation? (laughs) Did you hear that? I mean, what's going on, man, at the end? Even now, but at the end, 
Yes, of course. He's worthy of exaltation. It is interesting to note though, and don't miss that, and the Lamb. 6.10 in Revelation, victory to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 11.15, the kingdom of the the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah. And He will rule forever and ever. And that could, should bring you to the angelic announcement in Luke 3. When the angel comes to Miriam and says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. Revelation 12.10 And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... At the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brother has been, brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And where, where does Yeshua derive this authority? He earned it. He earned it. It wasn't just some mystical thing where all of a sudden, hey, hey, Messiah, cool, let's do that. He earned it. And Scripture upon Scripture from, the, from our texts, from, from traditional Jewish texts from the Apocrypha, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm coming back to this. Then comes the end. When He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Man, pay attention to that. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Where did he get it? God gave it to him. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given... This should sound like Revelation. Why? Daniel's an apocalyptic text. It should sound and remind you of Revelation. It says, And presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Where did he get it? God gave it to him. And first Enoch to go apocryphal on you. Before the sun and the signs were created, before the stars of heaven were formed, his name was invoked in the presence of the Lord of Spirits. A support shall he be for the righteous and the holy to lean upon without falling, and he shall be the light of nations. He shall be the hope of those whose hearts are troubled. All who dwell on earth shall fall down and worship before him, bless him, and glorify him. Is Yeshua worthy of exaltation and honor and glory? Yes. Where did he get it? God gave it to him, and he earned it. That is a glorious description of Yeshua. Man, and I didn't have to do anything except just read the Bible (laughs) to find it. Woo! The divine Redeemer. The sent one. The Son of God. The exalted Son of Man. Sent to redeem mankind and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And where do most people go when it comes to Yeshua? He saved me that I will go to heaven. And I love him for that. There is, please, 
Don't, under, don't misunderstand my sarcasm. The picture that we just painted of this divine redeemer, king, son of God, is so much bigger than you. So much bigger. Now listen to me. This is so important. If we lose sight of the fact that it was Yeshua's death, His blood, His burial, and His resurrection that have made the way for us to enter into everlasting life. It is atonement. It is atonement. That means we could live in God's presence. And it is not just any death. It was humiliating, excruciatingly painful, undeserved death on a wooden stake at the hands of Roman pagans and through corruption in the priesthood. And through that death, the God of the universe, that is the Father, the Creator, the Ein Sof Himself, tasted death in His Son. I believe it. But in His Son, the Son of God, and His death, death was defeated. To what end? To what end that you can go to heaven? The picture's bigger than you, Jonathan. This is truly one of my favorite and most overlooked scriptures of God's plan through his Messiah. And this is coming from Paul, and it's 1 Corinthians 15, and I want you to study it. Urban, one time I mentioned this text to you. Now I'm going to bring it home. According to Paul, 1520, in fact, Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Messiah, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to the Messiah. Remember last week, we talked specifically about Adam, the man from dust and what he took from you, and the man from heaven and what he gave back to you. But the good part is here. Then comes the end. Okay? Okay? So that happened. That is not the end of the story. The fact that you got saved and are going to heaven. There's a bigger part. Much bigger part. And Paul says, and then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom. Oh my, man. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, is accepted. When all things are subjected to Him, the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. Did you hear that? Do you understand that? It's very, very important. When all things are subjected to Him, the Son of Man will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. What does that mean? It means everything that we have said for the last seven weeks. 
Ah, oh, I love that. Now listen to this controversial thing. The mission is not really accomplished. The best part is coming. But Damien, on the cross, he specifically said, it is finished. You bet it is. Thank God. His humanity, his blood, the, the sin, the weight of the world that was upon him, the way that opened the door for you everlasting. In him, that part is finished. But the good part is still to come. Where is he, Yeshua? On the throne? Not yet. I don't like that. I'm sorry. Not yet. Hebrews 8, 1. Now the point in, what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Doing what? In his little throne? No. Waiting. Waiting for the word that's going to come from the Father who is putting all things in subjection. Has put all things on in subjection to him. But let's make this very brief stop at the Kisehakavod. No, Dave, that's not Hebrew for the restroom. <laughs> In Alabama, they call that a commode. This is something different. Something extremely different. Maybe I shouldn't have even joked. Forgive me, Hashem, if that was out of line. Kisehakavod. The throne of glory. Let's make a quick stop there because it's important. What is God's throne? Like the Torah, it was created before the world existed. Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer said that the souls of the righteous are concealed under the throne of God. The throne, the abode of God, known from which God manifests His majesty and glory. Isaiah tells us what the throne of God is in Isaiah 66.1. What is it? Anyone have a guess? What is God's throne? Kisehakavod. What is it? Heaven. Heaven. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. Isaiah 66. It's a vision. It's, a, it's, it's an allegory. Yeshua is in the Father's presence up there i mean we can't comprehend it but that's where it is the throne and there's some kind of song from the 60s that i wish i knew how to quote it but it says something like but a change is a coming sounds like johnny cash should sing that but change is coming Jeremiah 3.17, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their evil heart. Where is the throne coming? Yerushalayim. And here is something important. This is actually... This is maybe the most important. Turn to Revelation 22. I just want to read you something. 21. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to read it. The throne is coming to Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city. 
For Adonai, God of heaven's armies, is its temple, as is the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's Shekinah gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Its gates will never close. They stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and splendor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only one who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Next, chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of water of life, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne. Whose throne? Of God and the Lamb. Between the main street and the river was the tree of life, producing 12 kinds of fruit, a different kind every month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing the nations. No longer will there be any curses. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist. They will need neither the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because Adonai, God, will shine upon them. And they will reign as kings forever and ever. Do you believe me the best part is coming? Do you have any concept? I mean, we don't have any concept because it's beyond our conceptual thinking. But there's some important things right in there. Very important and extremely powerful that I think maybe God gave me to just this picture of understanding this that I want to share with you. My Midrash. That's kind of confusing, actually. The throne of God and the Lamb. Now, most people, many people, say then that there are two thrones there. Finally, now Jesus has His throne. And God has one, and the Lamb has one, and we've got... No. It's singular. The throne of God and the Lamb. But there's something even more interesting. Sun and moon. There will be no more need for sun and moon. Why the distinction? Why? Why? It's interesting. They're both light givers, right? No. No, they're not. The moon is not. What is the moon? It's a reflector. It's a reflector. The light is the Shekinah. The lamp is the lamb. Interesting choice. The moon is the reflector. The moon's light is the sun's light. And here, the sun's light is the Father's light. There is an actual throne now established, and the language makes it clear. There's leaves, there's fruit, there's trees, there's rivers, there's all kinds of stuff, and the throne's right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. Whose throne? Whose throne? God's and the Lamb's. It says it. It's not complicated. Who is seated there? How can God be seated there? God's Shekinah, His overarching, uncontainable presence is the light. Who's seated there? Mashiach. Mashiach. The Son of David. The Son of God. 
is seated there on the throne of his father David and on the throne of his father God and not, not to supersede the father in any way, but simply to be what he has always been for us, the way, the truth, and the life. The way that God has manifest himself in a way that we, his frail creatures, can behold and participate in and be in the presence of. Mashiach reigns from Jerusalem, seated on the throne of his father and his own throne because he has the ultimate authority of God within him. And he represents the father on his throne in Jerusalem, And forever, forever, do you understand? That's confusing when the angel says, and he'll have a throne forever. He'll have a throne forever. But the Messianic age is only a thousand years. That's when he's going to rule in Jerusalem. But then what happens after his throne? He gets a better one. He gets the ultimate one. Is he worthy of worship and exaltation? My God, my God in heaven, yes. What do we do with him? I can't say it any clearer than what he is, what he was, and what he will be. Forever. Adonai God will shine upon them, and they, the servants who worship God, will reign as kings forever. This is the answer to Yeshua's prayer in John 17. Restore me to the glory I had with you before the foundations of the earth. Father, glorify me in your presence. And here it comes, brothers and sisters. I told you Adam stole from you. What did he steal? He stole everlasting life. But he stole the light. He stole the light. The sun and moon were not created till way later. But there was light. And what was it? It was the Shekinah. It was the holy presence of God and Adam had the opportunity to be in it. Just in it. But he lost it. But the Son of God got it back. And that is the light which will provide the light for us forever. And we will bask in the Shekinah of God and in the light of the Lamb. Reflecting simply His Father's glory. That's where He lives. That's who He is. Man. Oh, man. And so you can see, God knew what he was doing from the beginning. Are you surprised by that? I'm not. 
Believe in God. Believe also in me, he says. You know, when Thomas is confronted with him, he, he says, show me your hands. And, and this, is the classic, this is the classic Christian uh, uh, conclusion that says, right there, Jesus is God. Thomas says, my Lord, my God. I read it differently. Do you know what I see? I see exactly what I just said. See it exactly. Look at my hands, my Lord, and my God. One, inseparable. How do we give him his proper place? I see him, my friends, like Stephen saw him. I see him yesterday. Yesterday, not not in one of those weird ways. I see him in my mind's eye, like Stephen saw him when the heavens opened, and there he was at the right hand of the throne of God in Acts, right? I see him. I see the man I listen to his words for my life now. I see him literally in the heavenly places. And every day, three times or more, actually, I will pray, come, Messiah. Come, establish your kingdom for the days when you shall be king. And God's Shekinah shall be our light. And the lamp, Lamb will reign in Jerusalem. And I say to him, because of you, because of you, we will all be there. Shabbat shalom. Amen.